from the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914 on June the 28th. It took only five weeks uh, for Europe to slide from a, a nervous situation of peace to a raging war. Britain was determined but unready. Uh, its army was badly equipped and it was tiny in comparison to the Germans. At the outset of the war, the country had been promised that, uh, by politicians and royalty and many that the war would be over by Christmas, six months. But it was the uh, newly appointed Secretary of State for War, Lord Kitchener, who was sceptical of that belief. And he believed and he promoted his view to saying that the only way that we would win the war is if we had a million more men than the Germans. As a result, the country was swept up in this kind of frenzy of patriotism, wasn't it? As groups of local friends and relations joined up to form these PALS battalions, as they became to be known. The men knew that war would very uh, probably seriously or mortally wound them. But they signed up in their thousands, in their tens of hundreds of thousands. But for what? I think they signed up, and many of us do, that they signed up for a noble and honourable cause, a cause that would liberate Europe, mainland Europe, from fascism. So, as we've just done, we will remember them. Many lives gave, uh, many men gave their lives to retain the privileges of freedom that we enjoy in this country. And when those men went to war, that they, they fought with strategy, pretty archaic strategy in World War I that proved pretty poor. Um, they, they fought with the best weaponry that they, they had at their disposal. They had a noble purpose. And they fought with great urgency. And they took every opportunity to encroach into the lines of the Germans, to advance against the enemy. But the freedom and the liberty that they won was temporary, it was partial. Now we enjoy freedom that their lives have brought us and bought us, but that freedom doesn't make us completely free from all the pain that we face in life in this world. But you see, in our passage tonight, we see, I suppose, a battle being fought. The weaponry and the strategy may be different, but they are equally ruthless. There is an urgency to the battle and and every opportunity is taken for advance. But the freedom that is won is complete and it is eternal, not partial and temporary. Now this is our last week in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. The focus has been, of course, the authority of the king the king of God's eternal kingdom, namely Jesus. We've seen him. He's previously shown that authority in his teaching. And you see that in Matthew chapter 5 to 7, the great sermon on the mount. Um, what we've seen in chapters 8 and 9 is that authority displayed, but now in miraculous ways, healing numerous people in these little groups of healings throughout the, these two chapters. Um, and they're kind of culminating in that central little story of him calming the wind and the waves. 
Jesus has shown that he's got the authority to transform and restore this broken world. And in so doing it, what he's doing is he's giving us a glimpse of what is to come. That eternal restoration that can only be found of being part of God's good and eternal kingdom. See, these chapters point to a restoration that is complete. A restoration that is eternal. But one that begins the moment that you put your faith in the king of that eternal kingdom. And you choose to follow him. Which is what so many have done throughout Matthew chapters 8 and 9. In our passage tonight, Jesus carries on this ministry. of You see it in verse 35, healing every disease and sickness. Do you see that? Now these healing miracles, they... they sh- they, they show the compassion of Jesus, but all, also his authority to eternally restore the brokenness of life we know and experience. And what we have in verse 35 there is just, if you like, a summary of Jesus' ministry. Uh, his teaching, preaching, and healing. If you just look back to chapter 4, verse 23, you also see the same summary marker there. Um, and, and both of these markers act as, if you like, both of these verses act as bookmarks, if you like, to summarise this initial period of Jesus' ministry on earth. But here as we get to the end of this section of Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 onwards, just before the second discourse in Matthew's Gospel, that second clump, that second block of Jesus' teaching beginning in chapter 10, verse 5, What we see in this end bit here is Jesus' ministry is changing gear. Now he's established his authority in these last two chapters, despite all the opposition of the religious establishment. He's shown he can win any kind of battle that the world puts in his way. But now, having his disciples seen his authority displayed, he's going to rally them and he's going to send them out. To continue his ministry with the authority that he's bestowed on them. So that they might win some for the eternal kingdom of God. Now his disciples are going to see in these just a couple of verses before they're sent out. The strategy, if you like, of the battle ahead. They're going to see the weaponry at their disposal. You have to excuse all these kind of, uh, you know. It's remembrance Sunday. I can get away with as many war illustrations as I want to today. And you can't complain. But, you know, they're going to see the purpose and need behind their ministry and the urgency of their mission. But lastly, beautifully in God's kindness, they will also see, and we will also see, the assurance and the comfort that we need to keep going in this mission. So let's go. Point one, verse 35. Here's the strategy. The strategy is the gospel proclaimed. Look at verse 35 with me. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Now, as we said, healing every disease and sickness. That's the visible demonstration of Jesus' restorative power, that authority over this broken world. But the teaching of the gospel, this good news of the kingdom here in verse 35, is the key to the strategy and, if you like, the weaponry also of Jesus in his earthly mission. For you see, it's only in the hearing of the good news that people can understand who Jesus really is. Oh, of course, the miracles, they visibly demonstrate, don't they, the authority of Jesus... 
you know, but the teaching, the preaching, the proclamation of the gospel, those two things together, they explain and they call people to put their faith in this authoritative king. The king that brings complete restoration and eternal freedom in the kingdom of God. The strategy for winning and saving people for God's kingdom is to proclaim the good news of Jesus, the king of the kingdom. The gospel needs to be proclaimed. But note how this strategy has worked out. Look at the first uh, little clause there. Jesus went through all the towns and villages. That is, I think you would see that there's a kind of a restlessness. There's a, there's a great activity to what's going on here. It didn't seem like Jesus was satisfied to just sort of keep the good news, uh, the gospel of the kingdom of God to himself. Proclaiming the gospel consumed his time and his energy. His life priority was to make uh, more and more people aware that salvation was possible through him. That would be a thankless task, wouldn't it? If we and Jesus were to proclaim bad news. I've been watching West Wing recently. I don't think I even have to introduce that here because I think most of you have watched every series. But um, I've been watching that. I found it on a few occasions quite moving uh, in the way that those telephone calls that the President of the United States has to make to servicemen and women, their families, having their child being lost in, in some black op or whatever it may be, exciting things that happen in the West Wing. And I think they, it's very profound in the way that they depict those telephone calls. They're not afraid to show the sadness involved telling someone that their son has died. But what I found really interesting is they show really cleverly, I think, and quite movingly, the reluctance of the president to make those calls. It's very hard, isn't it, to speak to someone knowing that they might be hurt or upset by some bad news that you have to give them, some difficult news. We're naturally reluctant in those kind of conversations, aren't we? Because that's bad news we're proclaiming. But as disciples of Jesus, and as Jesus is proclaiming here, we are only called to proclaim the gospel. Good news. It's good news of an eternal kingdom. And the disciples of Jesus, they're going to be sent out. You can see over, turn over the page in chapter 10, verse 7. Uh, they're, they're called to preach the news. Uh, and the, the news that they're proclaiming is good. It's amazing news. Now, we might have, not have the authority as the, the, the twelve did to drive out demons and heal every disease. As you can see in chapter 10, verse 1. But... As disciples, as followers of Jesus, we have the privilege, we all do, to preach and teach this good news of Jesus. That saving gospel for entrance into his good eternal kingdom. See, the strategy is to proclaim. The weaponry is the gospel. Of course, some people you explain the gospel to will not appreciate it. But we should expect that, shouldn't we? I mean, many of you will know 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Foolishness. 
But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. See, those who are enemies of God, who choose to ignore the mercy and the love of God, will always find that gospel offensive. It's like an enemy in a war situation. They're never going to appreciate the weaponry of the opposing side, are they? The gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross, taking a punishment that your rebellion and my rebellion deserves on himself and offering to us his perfect and righteous life to be counted to us before God at judgment. That perfect exchange, that amazing exchange, that is precious and it is powerful to save us. But it will offend some. Others, however, their hearts will melt as you tell it to them, as you teach it to them. And they will see their need for a saviour. To us, who are being saved, it is the power of God. We are involved in that battle, a struggle to liberate people into the eternal freedom of God's kingdom. The strategy proclaimed, the weaponry, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospels to be proclaimed. Secondly, we must see the need, the gospel need. Verse 36. Here's the purpose of proclaiming the gospel, the need for proclaiming the gospel. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Firstly, note that Jesus had compassion. He had compassion. Jesus views these crowds before him. But not as we might do at just first glance. He doesn't look at them and see what they're wearing and make a few kind of judgment calls about the kind of person they are, what kind of thing they do. He doesn't listen out for their accents. He doesn't inquire about their job and their financial status. What kind of car do you drive? Do you live in a flat or a house? Do you rent or do you own? That's what we do when we see people and often speak to people. Well, Jesus sees the people of Israel and privileged in so many ways as they were. And, and, and how does he see them? What does he do? He has compassion. He sees them, it says, harassed and helpless there, doesn't it, in verse 36. And literally that means that they were unable to rescue themselves from their tormentors. So that's what it kind of literally means. I want to ask, would we see them as that? Picture yourself tomorrow, if you can. Um, Elsil Station is quite a unique station, isn't it? Because it's got one little hole that everyone goes in and out of. It's not like two holes where some people go in and some people come out. It's just that one hole that everyone goes in and everyone comes out of. And uh, that's why locally it's known as the rat hole, isn't it? You know, everyone sort of goes, everyone goes in at the beginning of the day and everyone comes out at the end of the day. It's bizarre, but there we go. Picture yourselves looking at those crowds of people swarming in that hole tomorrow. How would you view them? Oh, you may observe a few things. You may observe their urgency. You know, as they all kind of run towards and bustle up the stairs to get their prime position on the platform to make sure that the door's open and they're first to stand in and then realise, oh, there's no seats. Because there aren't when you get to Earlsfields. 
You might observe their impatience as they wait on the platform now for the ticket machine. And as the train comes in, they kind of stand there and go, come on, hurry up, because the... and then the train goes and they miss it. You might observe a bit of impatience. So you may have some sympathy for your fellow commuters. I certainly did a couple of weeks ago. I was walking the boys to school and clearly a man who had got up very, very late, because that's about quarter to nine, um, uh, kind of was making his way very in a kind of hassled way towards work. And I think when he got changed, he hadn't realised he'd not only tucked his shirt into his uh, suit trousers, but he'd also tucked his suit jacket into his, <laughs> into his trousers at the back. It's a bit of a kind of like sartorial faux pas, isn't it? But there he has. The funny thing was, no one had mentioned it to him whatsoever. Oh, we can have sympathy, can't we, for those kind of situations that we observe. But do you see your fellow workers, your commuters, your neighbours, as Jesus sees them? Um, Not just with intrigue and sympathy, but with compassion. Knowing they are unable to save themselves from God's right and just judgment. The problem I guess we face is that most of the people we know, they just seem fine, don't they? Probably better than fine. They've got, they've got good jobs, many of our friends, haven't they? And they're, they're healthy. They don't seem to be helpless in any way at all. They don't seem to be in trouble. Perhaps more the opposite. But as back in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 9, Jesus sees to man's greatest need, doesn't he? Do you remember that story? He sees man's greatest need as the forgiveness of sin. And likewise here, his compassion is born of his perception to see beyond the trivial, beyond the temporal concerns of his life. For here, his compassion is rooted in in the inability of the crowd to save themselves from a just judgment that is coming their way. And all that they deserve is coming their way through God. They've ignored him. And they've not trusted in his promises. And Jesus can see through that and see their greatest need is the forgiveness of their sin. He has compassion. The desire to proclaim the saving gospel is born when we see with the perceptive and compassionate eyes of Jesus. And then we can begin to look deep into the hearts of those who live around us, those who we work with, and see that they are helpless. They are unable to save themselves before a holy and perfect God. Jesus had compassion on this crowd will we Jesus describes this crowd as a sheep without a shepherd, you see that in that verse it's it's imagery that's used throughout the Bible it begins back in Numbers chapter 27 verse 15, Numbers 27 verse 15, Moses says to the Lord here may the Lord the God of the spirits of all mankind, here we go appoint a man Over this community to go out and come in before them. One who will lead them. And bring them in so the Lord's people will not be like a sheep without a shepherd. And from that point on this sheep without a shepherd metaphor is is used to describe a lack of leadership for God's people. A lack of care for them. 1 Kings 22, for example, the same. You'll know well Isaiah 53, verse 6, or Ezekiel 34 as well. And the shepherd imagery can either refer to God himself, where the people were ignoring his care and direction, 
or it can refer to a political or spiritual leader providing care and direction for God's people. The shepherd imagery in the Old Testament, though, of course, points towards the necessity for a good, a perfect, a true shepherd. In 1 Peter 5 verse 4, we see we know the chief shepherd, and he's called Jesus. And when Jesus returns, he will eternally protect and guide his people. But before then, he's appointed leaders in his church to shepherd God's people, protecting them and guiding them. And Jesus sees the crowd here in Matthew 9 as harassed and helpless. They're sheep without a shepherd, unprotected from the predators of this world and the unscrupulous shepherds that go about and lead people in the wrong directions. Those warnings come from Zechariah chapters 10 and 11. So we must learn from this. There are people who are sheep without a shepherd. And if we're leaders in a church, whether we're elders or whether we're home group leaders or just people that that people like to turn to for advice and, and warning and help and encouragement, we have a responsibility under the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus. And we need to look with compassion as Jesus did, as he looked at this crowd and look around at those of us in the church and to protect and guide Shepherd the flock with the gospel that we've been provided with. But to all of us, we all have a responsibility to look at the crowds around us in our lives and to look with the eyes of Jesus, with compassion. We all know many, many, many people who are helpless to save themselves before a holy and just God. And we know there are many predators around too, don't we? Many things draw our friends away from God and we need to do everything that we can to protect our friends from those ways of thinking. Showing them that the ultimate satisfaction is only gained in the eternal safety of being in God's flock. The need is obvious. And that is why we're going to sing in a moment to finish. Look at If you can, at verse 2 of O Church Arise. The need is obvious, and that's why we're going to sing our call to war, is to love the captive soul. The one who's captivated by the way of this world and the way of the devil and not God. And we are to rage against the captor and with the sword in your hand. That makes the wounded whole. We will fight with faith and valour. Can't wait to sing that verse in a while. The gospel proclaimed. The gospel need. Look with compassion on sheep without a shepherd. Thirdly, the gospel urgency. Verse 37. Read with me if you can. Look at it. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Do you know how people live in Ellsfield? I didn't count them, but I did a Google search. In the voting district of Earlsville, there are apparently 16,000 people. Represented in the areas of which the majority of us live, a bit of Southfields, Wimbledon Park, maybe a little bit into Tooting and Earlsfield itself. What do we say? Maybe 30, maybe 35, maybe 40,000 people. The church population in that area is less, way less than 1,000 people. The harvest is plentiful. 
The harvest in the Old Testament is just a picture of coming judgment. And it's used as such in Matthew's Gospel. For example, in the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13. But here in Matthew 9, rather than the angels being the harvesters of God's judgment, here we see people are sent out to rescue others from God's judgment. And Jesus is speaking disciples to disciples in this verse. And the word used is not strictly the twelve there, but more generically, followers of Jesus. And Jesus is saying the harvest of people needing to escape the just judgment of God is huge. It is plentiful. But he's saying the workers are few. We know this harvest of people needs to hear the gospel proclaimed. That's, if you like, the strategy of the gospel. We know the necessity, our compassion for the sheep without a shepherd, shows us that gospel need. But do we see the urgency? The point of this image of the, of the harvest and the workers is to say that, that judgment is coming and we do not know the hour. There are so many people out there who need to hear the gospel. Oh, you may think that you have compassion, but can I challenge you and ask you, do you really have compassion if you have no urgency? I don't think you can be compassionate without being urgent. Can you imagine if I was watching my youngest son, Zachary, and he's about to kind of step out onto a road and get hit by a truck. Can you imagine if I had compassion, but I did nothing? If there was no urgency... Is that real compassion without me reaching out? I don't think so. On your way home, why don't you look at the people in the streets of Earlsfield as you cycle, drive past the pubs and look at them. Try and look at them as Jesus does. With compassion and see if that helps you become more urgent. There is a harvest of people in Earlsfield that are about to get crushed by the truck of God's judgment. What are we going to do? If you want to be part of God's work in Earlsfield, some of us have to think very hard about how we view the people of Earlsfield. Do we love them enough to get involved in their lives? in the community, so that we can start conversations with them and show compassion to them and urgency so that they might know and hear the gospel. We're not a central London church that many of us have enjoyed over years, are we? That's a great privilege where we can go into the centre and there's many friends and networks that can come in and and meet us in the centre and come and hear the gospel. No, we're, we're not a centrally located network church. We are a local church. And there's a population around us. The harvest is plentiful. And if we're not local, then we're going to struggle, aren't we, to look with compassion on anyone who might be able to feel that they can come to this church. The harvest is plentiful in Ellsville, but the workers are few. We all have a responsibility of being urgent workers for the gospel, but some of us have the privilege of full-time harvesting. We're paid for that responsibility. And I love my job. I feel a huge privilege in doing it. 
I get to meet people in Earlsfield and read the Bible with them and proclaim the gospel to them. And, and there's one or two guys here and others who, who know how passionate I am to do that. And I want to thank the rest of you for sort of supporting me in doing that and, and, and Linda and others. Not all of us, though, can be paid to be full-time gospel workers, harvesters, if you like. But many of you can support paid full-time gospel work. As I said, I was in Edinburgh over the, over the weekend and I was staying with a good friend of mine. Um, he was, uh, used to go to a church up in Emmanuel in Wimbledon, but he lived very close to me and uh, we became good friends. And he loves the gospel. He's a very well-paid banker and um, he supports his wife so she doesn't have to work, but she's a student worker at the church um, because they, they can afford that. But he asked me late on Friday night over a very, very nice glass of port, um, what I thought about him giving up banking and going into full-time gospel-paid ministry. And I said to him, maybe, maybe not. It wasn't my place to, to make that kind of decision. That's between him, prayerfully, and, and between God. But I did make this point. I said, with your earning power, you could fund ten full-time gospel workers for their whole lives. In the morning we went outside and, uh, and I, it was very dark when I came to his house and we went outside, he's got a nice flat in the middle of Edinburgh and uh, there was the most amazing brand new red Ferrari outside of his house. My immediate thought was, have you bought that? You've bought a Ferrari. I was, I was about to go, come on, open the car, let's go in, let's go for a drive around. That was my immediate assumption. He got out his little key fob and pressed the button. And the lights of a Volkswagen Golf beside it flashed and we got in and drove away. He knew what I thought though. He knew that I'd been thinking that, oh, he'd spent all his money on this lavish car and so on. And we'd been talking about this passage the night before and he, he just said to me, he assured me, he said, there will be lots of workers in the harvest field because I'm willing to give up much of my earnings in order to support them and live a very simple life with his wife in Edinburgh. He knows the urgency of the gospel. He knows that the, the, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few and he wants to support that as much as he possibly can. I want to ask, do we know that kind of urgency for the gospel to be proclaimed? That the harvest is massive but the workers are so few. We all need to do our job in that harvest field. We can all work, but we can all make lifestyle choices like my friend has done in Edinburgh to make sure we can support more and more harvest workers in the field. Lastly then, very briefly, the comfort in the battle. The gospel comfort. Verse 38. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Do you see what you have to do here? It's brilliant, isn't it? We have to ask. Ask the Lord of the harvest. The harvest is not in our control. It is God's work under his sovereign power. All we have to do is ask and be willing. And this is great comfort, isn't it? Because the harvest is not in our hands. We have the responsibility. And I guess we've heard the challenge of those previous three verses. As you know, God speaks through his word and by his spirit... We have to proclaim the gospel. We need to have compassion in this world uh, because there are many in danger before God's judgment. We know the urgency that we ought to feel. We know we need 
to, we know what we need to do, but ultimately, ultimately what we need to do is just ask and be willing to be sent. I suppose it's just, do you dare? The Lord is in control. Do you trust his plans and his will? Ask and be willing. The gospel proclaim, the gospel need, the gospel urgency, the gospel comfort. Today we've remembered men and women who have laid down their lives for freedom that we enjoy. And we will, we will remember them, won't we? But will people remember us? I pray that they will remember men and women who with compassion laid down their lives for the people of Earlsfield, proclaiming that good news, that saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Will people say in the future of us, uh, will people say in the future about us? We will remember them. Let's pray. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Lord, we know the urgency, and we know the need. Help us to look with the eyes of Jesus on those around us, to ask for your provision and for your help, and to be willing to be sent out as workers into your harvest field, to do your work for your glory, proclaiming that great and wonderful news of the kingdom of God. We ask it for your glory and for the extension of your church. Amen.